Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening and for your great feedback. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And speaking of feedback, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. I really appreciate your ideas and suggestions and certainly want to expand our audience to other nonprofit leaders just like you. I had a fantastic conversation this episode with Karen Lee, who is leading one of the largest social enterprise nonprofit organizations in the United States. It's called Pioneer Human Services. It's based in Seattle. And it is having an impact across the state of Washington, but it's also certainly a national model that supports access to housing, workforce development, and other treatment programs for over 10,000 people a year. Now, as impressive as Pioneer is as a nonprofit organization, Karen's leadership journey is equally impressive. She combines military service, a law degree, and success in public and private sectors before she moved into nonprofit leadership. And certainly our sector is grateful that she found Pioneer about 10 years ago. Now, as you would imagine, she has great wisdom to share from her journey in nonprofit leadership. And we talked about how she in- integrates advocacy into her leadership agenda uh, to help move the needle on causes that her organization is serving. We also talked about how she's expanded her fundraising and philanthropy skills and building a team to do that more effectively and how she's working with her various boards of directors, volunteers across the state of Washington. And finally, we talked about how she's strategically planning for the future. Lots of insight to be gained from this episode, and it'll certainly help you on your leadership journey as well. Don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 83. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources that Karen and I discuss, as well as more information on her and the great work she's doing at Pioneer Human Services. And speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list, and you'll get free resources that we're sending out every week. And let us know if we can help you with your nonprofit's strategic planning, Perhaps it's board engagement, or maybe we can help you on your personal leadership journey through our coaching, training, or mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Karen Lee. Karen, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, you've got lots of great things to share. You know, fascinating background. Uh, You combine military service, public and private sector experience, a law degree, but you ended up as a nonprofit CEO and frankly, an impressive uh, resume that has led to now you're leading one of the largest nonprofit social enterprise organizations in the country. So, I know we're going to learn a lot from you and what you're doing now. And of course, our listeners are going to be curious about that journey. So tell us, how did you get to this nonprofit leadership role you have now? It's been a life journey for me. I'm a military brat. And um, and I think that military brats see service in action because their parents are um, soldiers or they're airmen. And so you grow up with this 
idea that there is a cause that's big, that's bigger than yourself and that's inculcated in you right. from a young age. And then on top of that, I am an African-American woman for viewers that are listening and, um, and being black impacts you as well. I, I was exposed to racism and discrimination when I was here in the U.S. And then when we were living overseas it was different. It, um, absolutely. Uh, um, there was a lot of curiosity, I would say around race, but not the same subtle inferior, superior race relations and tensions that you see in the U S. So as I was, as I was growing up, I, uh, I wanted to do something about that, but I didn't know what, and after West Point and my own military experience, I decided that I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. <laughs> Good. And I left the military. I was a logistics officer when I was in the Army. And I uh, enrolled in law school. And I wanted to come and, and go to law school close to home. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, the state of Washington. And while I was in law school, I thought, you know, if I really don't want to just practice law, but I still want to lead people because I liked leadership when I was in the military, I said, I better study business just in case. (laughs) So I ended up studying business and law at the same time. And I think that that was a great foundation for my career. And after I left law school, I, um, I had a, a, I practiced law for a couple years. I did I did pro bono work. I did corporate work, and I realized that lawyers effect change through cases, yep. through taking cases, but not necessarily executing the change. And that's when I realized I want to do a little more of that. So I and I also knew I needed to have some management experience. So I, I went from there to a utility company. And um, had a mid-management career where I moved from an individual contributor position up to a um, a junior executive position in the space of about seven years, and and that and that career progression really served me well in terms of leading a um, an organization the way I do today. The utility they worked that I worked at. Um, was a, a private utility, which meant that you could trade their stock on the, on the, you know, you, you could go buy their stock. They were traded um, on the stock market at the time. Right. And, um, and, you know, our bottom line was very important to us at the same time, our, you know, our commitments to our customers were important. So, uh, you know, on my journey, on my management journey, I think I had seven positions, probably five promotions I really learned about um, about leadership at all levels, particularly mid-management. So when I got a call from the governor of the state of Washington to lead a state agency, I felt that I was very prepared to do that because nice. I knew the uh, policy side, I knew the management side, and then I, was a le- I had a legal background. So, um, so when I moved to... The Employment Security Department in Washington, that's our state's labor department. Um, that's on the governor's cabinet. The governor is your boss. 
I learned a lot in that role. But one <laughs> of the things that you learn when you're leading a labor agency is that the labor economists work for the commissioner. So in our state, the title is commissioner. And the labor economists, I would read those reports. And that's when I realized how much income inequity exists in our com- in our country. Right. Um, and um, and I and I and I thought I had read about it. I think I might have known about it, but when you run a a labor department, it's in your face. You see the results monthly. You see the unemployment rates. Um, you see what happens to people that are on um, TANF or 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 other uh, types of, of of programs. And in fact, your job is to is to try to 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 uh, expand the labor market and access to the labor market to people and and out of all those groups that struggled the folks that struggled the worst or the most were people that had um, a felony conviction all their on on their records right, and they right. were disproportionately people of color so um, when pioneer was looking for a chief executive officer i knew that it was the right company for me. I knew that I would be able to make a difference. And then the fact that it was a social enterprise, it really just pressed all my buttons because you've got the challenge of the businesses and and having them compete successfully in their markets. You've got the challenge of the clients and all the barriers that are in society. You've got the challenges of all the services and all all the challenges that come with, with the nonprofit from funding, from demand um, to to community relations, all those things come together when you're running an organization like Pioneer. Um, But yeah, but I feel that um, every day uh, I'm making a difference and someone and our employees are making a difference. It has to make you feel good. And and yes, I love your your story because it obviously combines both personal and professionally how you brought it all together to, to be the leader you are now. And they need yes. you. And certainly mm-hmm. our communities need you. And, and I'm struck by the fact, I mean, Karen, you could have stayed in the private sector, you could have stayed in the law career, but you, you wanted to make a difference. And that is indeed something I'm glad to lift up. I, I, I'm fascinated by how you keep it all together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think at Pioneer, I was reading that you, you guys are running like 50 some programs. So yes. let me ask you the, the, the question that so many nonprofit leaders are struggling with, how do you stay organized, especially now, you know, over the last year or so when we've been juggling this virtual world? There's organized and then there's organized. <laughs> Good <laughs> distinction. Little O, big O. Um, I would say on, on, on the, the big O is you have to have great senior leadership and, um, and we have that at Pioneer. I have um, a chief financial officer and a chief operating officer that um, are just second to none. They're excellent in um, in their approach to their work, and um, and I don't have to second guess them. Right. Um, I also have some vice presidents that report directly to me. So the way that we're organized at Pioneer for the listeners is that um, is that Pioneer is a social enterprise, so it has um, businesses that are, are operated as business, as businesses, but they're under the nonprofit 
umbrella because their their profits support our the nonprofit work that we do. Right. But within right. their businesses, they compete, um, just like any other any other company. And um, and so our businesses are construction, aerospace, manufacturing, um, and food service. With the largest being construction and manufacturing. Um, our uh, construction um, company is it's it's about a five million dollar operation in our manufacturing. An aerospace is normally about a thirty-five million dollar a year operation. Although this year it's 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 and going to different. be less just yeah. because of uh, that. Um, there's a recession in that industry. So um, so the way that we structure the organization is that the all of the for-profit work that we do reports to our chief operating officer, and then the nonprofit and advocacy work reports directly up to me. Fantastic. And so, um, and, and so for the businesses, um, my, my chief operating officer reports to me just the same way that if he was part of a conglomeration, right, you know, he's got to hit his metrics, he's got to hit his targets, he has to keep his employees safe. Um, and he has a, what we call a mission requirement. So we expect that at, um, at least 60% of his employees um, are impacted by our company's mission. We think that's really, really important. And, um, and we try to live our values in that way. Love that. So, and it, it, yeah. Did you find sometimes that's a tug of war, Karen, that, that because you are running a complex business, mm -hmm. just like any other for-profit, but yet mm -hmm. you do indeed have a social mission. How do you deal with that tug of war, perhaps? It is, you have to accept the tug of war right. because you're running a social enterprise, right? So a social enterprise is a, is a nonprofit organization that uses a market-driven approach. And um, so you, you have a double bottom line. Some people yeah. call it a triple bottom line, but you at least will have a double bottom line. So um, not only do, do we have to have a profit every year uh, on our income statement, we have to show the results with our mission. And in, in our businesses, it's, it's all about economic opportunity and the route to a better life through an entry-level job, which can become a career. Yeah, and I love how you put that, that the double bottom line or triple, whatever, mm -hmm. however many bottom mm -hmm. lines, the point is you're having to focus on mm -hmm. all of them. And in fact, I was going to ask you about that, Karen. How do you divide your time? Clearly, you have to wear a lot of hats. You're capable, but have you found that there's kind of a rhythm that a third of your time is on advocacy, a third of your time is on philanthropy, or maybe how, how mm -hmm. would you describe that? It's changed over the years, good. And and as the company has changed, and and as as I've grown, and 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 the challenges that face us. Uh, so um, you know, when I first got to Pioneer, um, we were behind on some orders in our aerospace division, and by necessity, uh, our customers would, would call me and say, okay, let's talk. And so I'd have to involve myself in the aerospace side of the business. But um, uh, when, when you're in, in manufacturing, you have to deliver on time with the quality that the customer expects. Yep. 
and then at a price that they're willing to pay. And when you do those things, um, things are smooth. And when you don't do those things, you hear from your customers. Uh, so that was about 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I was spending time um, making, and, and part of what, why, uh, why our, our orders were, were late was that we hadn't invested in our capital infrastructure quite enough. And so we would have some, you know, some maintenance issues with machinery. And then once you get a breakdown um, in a bottleneck area, you're looking at having to push out your um, fulfillment dates and, and um, customers don't often like that. Yeah. That's not a conversation <laughs> you want to have. Is it? <laughs> um, so, um, so, so when an area is hot, I would say that a CEO is by necessity um, dragged in, but the more mature the organization is the less that happens, particularly in business. So I don't think I've had to actively be involved with the aerospace manufacturing business. Um, um, too much in the last several years. I, I'll, I'll get involved if we want to attract a customer. Right, uh, right. So at the very end of the sales process, um, I get involved uh, with, with our um, certification process. Um, and then, of course, when we're making decisions on, on, on capital purchases, I'm, in, I'm involved from that perspective, but not on a day-to-day basis do, yeah. do I do much with, with either the construction or the manufacturing business. So how my day goes or my weeks go, I think that um, advocacy probably takes, um, it probably takes about a third of my time. I, I think that overseeing the organization on a routine basis is, is about a third of my time. And then the, the other third of my time is a split between my board work, my community work, um, and urgent situations that arise in the organization. Makes total sense. I love how you said Mm -hmm. it. Of course you had to assure operational efficiency, didn't you, when you first arrived? So Mm -hmm. that made sense in terms of the proportion of your time and energy. But I was struck in our conversation before we actually started recording that it seemed to me advocacy became kind of a compelling mission for you personally, Mm -hmm. that as much good as you could do through all of your wonderful programs, you knew you could do more and and advocacy was the path? Absolutely. So interestingly enough, the history of our organization is that we the company went through a phase where it it didn't do it didn't have an advocacy arm, and um, and and what the company wanted to do was to serve the public by hiring people that others didn't want to hire and by delivering quality services, and that's a a wonderful thing. On the other hand, I thought we can do so much more if we can um, change laws reduce stigma, work on um, making, um, reducing barriers for clients that fit our profile, whether we touch them directly or not. And the very first thing that I had to do at that time was to work with my board to, 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 to get them to agree to this type of strategy and then make the shift and start um, walking down that path. So it, it it took about a year or two to put all the things in place for us to become a, an advocacy-oriented organization in addition to all the work that- Well, I was going to say, on top of everything you're already doing, yeah. but I am, I am curious. So Karen, if I'm an executive director and I, mm-hmm. like you, realize if I want to move the needle, 
we've got to do more advocacy. But what exactly mm-hmm. did that look like? Was it first, all right, identifying kind of local, state, and federal legislators through which we need to develop relationships? Or can you talk about that mm-hmm. year when you started it? What did that look like? Yes, it's a, it's a good question. So we already had experience in working with the legislature but we would only advocate for the needs of the company. So right. if there, if so, for example, if legislature wanted to tax nonprofits, we would be in um, Olympia, which is our state capital, and we would be talking to legislators saying, "It doesn't help nonprofits. Don't do this. Slap <laughs> right. a twenty percent tax on us." Yeah. Uh, but but to to lobby for your cause is a little different. The first thing that you have to do is. Is, is decide where do you want to fit in with the scheme of things? Are there other organizations that are, are doing some or is just the whole, are there just so many needs you could almost pick one? Good point. So we, so we started with reentry in general. I had, we had participated on a, a community-oriented oriented task force in, um, in King County, which is this the county where Seattle sits. Right. So we had just finished completed a study with um, our county prosecuting attorney and, and several other community leaders and stakeholders that said these are the ten things that need to occur if we want to make a dent in mass incarceration in Washington State. Nice. So we started with the recommendations from that study and we just started to tick our way through them, and um, and that's what we used to start our lobbying effort. That became was, your game plan, right? It Literally. sure did. It sure did. And um, and some of those issues we um, were able to, um, you know, to put in practice with a law change with the state. Um, some others, like like uh, like equal housing for all, equal access to housing for for all individuals. We've had to do that on a on a municipality by by municipality basis. Right. So, um, but the way that you, you start is, is, is to pick your issue, look at the level, you know, where do you want to make change? Is this going to be a city ordinance or is it going to be a statewide issue? And then you just, um, you know, you and your, you know, maybe you hire a communications vice president that knows this area. And we just sat down and worked out, you know, a strategy asked our board members to get involved, asked our stakeholders to get involved and um, just started the campaign from there, right? You start to make, you know, appointments with your legislators or your city council members and say, will you support us on this issue? They'll say yes, or they'll say no. Or then you look for someone else. If they say yes, you start drafting. (laughs) I mean, ask them to sponsor your legislation and uh, away you go. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and I'm struck by, and I'm sure you know this. It, it, you could almost do that as a full time job, could you not? And so, do, do you come to some points? Where, all right, lots of battles to fight here, but we need to pick the ones we can be most effective. Or how do you kind of go through that analysis in your head? There's several ways that you can do it. You, 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 you can start with a, a community study. A lot of, a lot of communities already have studies on your issue. Good point. And you can dust those off and, and take a look at what's needed and see where the gap is. And then you, you go talk to your legislators. If it's, if the issue is resolved with legislation, right. I, I'll say that first. Yeah, that's good point. All issues. But for things that you need to change a law or a policy or a practice or something, um, 
then you ask them, would they care to support it? And then what are your, your, your legislators' thoughts? They may have a different approach. Or, or an, another way to go about it is to talk to other organizations that care about this issue and say, okay, is this something that we want to you know, fight in court? Maybe our partner is going to be the ACLU. Um, maybe it's, it's something that we can um, work with a legislator. Then you have issues that don't take law change. They might take, um, it might be um, just working with the agency that has the barrier. So I'm in the, re you know, I'm in the business of reducing reentry related barriers. We have housing authorities in our area that did not like to um, rent their units to folks that had um, a background because they want to keep their, their, uh, their um, housing properties crime-free that's important to them yep and so in that case it was a matter of working with their leadership talking to their leadership saying they understand your issue how can we meet halfway um we're talking about people that have changed yes yes so yes. so so what can you know our company do to work with you so that we can open up some of your housing units so in that case, right, it doesn't take a change of law. There's people that draft policies that that they have an interest they're 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 trying to uphold. And how how do we get alignment? So in something like that, it's a it's it's an, it's it's talking with um, people that can make a difference. You are a catalyst. Trying to work through their concerns. Yeah, you you were literally a catalyst, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. I think you're bringing people together. And well, a, a logistical question, Karen, for you. Um, obviously, it sounds like you invested some staff time in this advocacy. And mm -hmm. do you have like a board committee? I'm just curious on that level, mm -hmm. or all the board is sort of involved? Or did, did you make mm -hmm. any kind of specific moves staff and board wise to kind of embrace advocacy? What works? For us is is our board structure. We're a social enterprise, and so um, I, I we we try to have representation, geographical representation in our board. Yep. So our organization serves the entire state of Washington. So we try to have a board that is representative of the entire state of Washington. So. If I have a if if we're looking for a board member in a certain community, then um, we'll ask them during the board recruitment process. You, you know, is advocacy important to you? Is this something that you'd be willing to support us with? Yeah, great uh, point. Who are your friends? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know, and they'll come back and they'll and they'll respond accordingly. And yep. so, when when we are. Um, when, when we're uh, advocating on behalf of an issue that's related to a geographic region, then we'll call on that board member to help us. And if we, and so, and if we've made the right decision on, on the board member, they will be more than willing to support the organization because that's what they came on the board to do. Makes great uh, sense. And they get to yeah. help in their community, right? Yeah. That's something yeah. that helps you as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with, with the board our size, uh, you know, then I would expect about a third of the board to want to be active in advocacy. Not every board member is going to come into your board and want to, you know, be an advocate. So, How big yeah, is your board so, now, Karen? Sorry to interrupt you. How big is it now? Um, we have, I think, 18. Okay. 
So about so, a third will want to get involved. In yeah, it. but that's a good committee in a mm -hmm. sense, right? In terms yeah. of numbers. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. have you found advocacy has put you more in touch with your peers? I'm just curious about the collaborative nature of other CEOs and executive directors in Washington's nonprofit space. It absolutely does. Uh, um, and typically what the other uh, organization will do is, is they'll give you their person or they'll sign what you ask. So what all of the EDs try to do is to pick their issue. <laughs> right. And then, and then, and then what you'll do is you'll, you'll support that. So the EDs typically won't be on the same issue together. If, if another ED is working an issue, then I might have someone from Pioneer support them or vice versa. Gotcha. So gotcha. we'd all try to, you know, it's like a blanket approach. If that ED is working that issue, then I'll just say, how can we support you? Yeah, good for you. But you mentioned some of your time is spent in, in quote, community activity. I'm assuming some of that might be interaction with your colleagues and peers mm -hmm. in the nonprofit space, right? Yeah, that more comes from when you have to get a blue panel commission together. And then, <laughs> right. You know, we'll all be appointed on it together. And, and that's how we and that's um, how we get to know each other. And then after that, it's, you know, it's 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 the old school way of getting to know your your peers, right? It's phone calls and lunches and breakfasts and, you know, golf that's outings, just, that's the, you know, name it's of the game in the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, last advocacy question, Karen, it's impressive what you've done. How do you think you're doing? I mean, do you feel like, all right, we're making progress or is it just sometimes an uphill climb? Oh, it's always an uphill climb, but I feel like we've made tremendous progress. <laughs> yeah, good, uh, good. We've gotten some major laws passed just the last four years that, you know, Pioneer has been a part of in our state. Yes. Unfortunately, it's a mountain of an issue. Uh, but, um, but what excites me is that more and more people are, are on their own um, working to address um, issues related to mass incarceration and, and the decriminalization of substance use disorder and mental health. And I think that um, the, it's gaining traction. So I'm very happy about that. And um, um, we're going to somehow, you know, you know, raise that mountain, you know, you're make, moving you know, the needle rock at a right? time. Yeah. Or whatever mm -hmm. analogy we want to use, you're, you're moving it forward. And that's, that's mm -hmm. impressive. And well, let me shift gears with you. Uh, fundraising, as you know, is on the mind, either positively or negatively of every nonprofit leader. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, I'm, I'm being intentionally provocative. You don't have to fundraise, right? You have an enterprise that makes money, but I, from my notes here, I was noticing, but you were intentional, right? Of really kind of building a fundraising plan four or five years ago, maybe. So I wonder if you could talk about how you brought philanthropy into the mix of an already busy schedule. I wish you could see my face because when you said <laughs> you don't have to fundraise, I looked at you like, oh, you I saw it. Uh, trust me, I did see it. <laughs> Even if I didn't we, see it, I could tell. <laughs> we absolutely have to fundraise. And, and, and the reason is, is that the issue that Pioneer is here to resolve is expensive. Indeed. And, um, but it's completely resolvable if we approach it correctly. And Good. so we have to have more funding than we have today so that we can continue to serve people. I mean, for the work, 
for us to do it well is we, we have to, you know, our country has got to house tenfold, tenfold more people than it does today. Um, And, and, and it's got to believe in housing for people that are justice involved. And what we're trying to do at Pioneer is, is to be a stopgap and then raise awareness. Uh, but housing is expensive. We, we just built our first uh, new building, and that was $30 million. Wow. Um, and then you need to staff it with um, the appropriate case support. So with an experienced case manager, you have to staff it with the right janitorial, and you want to make the... Uh, um, building affordable it has to be affordable if it's low-income housing so we absolutely have to raise money and that's just for housing oh yeah job training um to get the the right case management to have the right supports for our job training program participants we absolutely need the community to support us because it's not anything we're we're able to get our um, local governments to pay for it this time. Yeah, that's what so. I yes, so we raise money. I, I knew I knew I would tee you up for that, <laughs> and I did intentionally um, because you're right, and and I understand. But I wonder sometimes you get that you know you you generate operational revenue through your programs, but mm-hmm. as you put so eloquently, philanthropy is what's going to really move the needle, right? I guess, and mm-hmm. that's what I was going to ask, and you answered beautifully. The case for support why you need philanthropy is because that's what's going to really make a difference. Yes. And it enables you to, um, to serve more people or to serve the, the, your clients with more depth. Indeed. So that they don't have a, me- a need that is unmet. In, in, in the work that we do in one of our programs, it's, in a, it's, a, it's a recidivism reduction program. Uh, our rates are 95% positive. It works, right? If you they, can do it. They work. And it doesn't matter the risk level of the individual that you're serving. But you have to address every single barrier. And, and that is what's expensive about it. But over the long run, it's much cheaper than locking a person yeah, up. Exactly. The alternatives that we mm-hmm. all too often settle for. Um, well, it, it, I guess, Karen, historically, my sense is you've taken fundraising to a whole new level. You know what it was 10 years ago. You've kind of ramped up. I, I'm curious, again, from your CEO chair, what did you do to raise more funds and, and create mm-hmm. that philanthropy that now is certainly happening more often? Well, it starts with your board. So we and with your organizational strategy. So uh, we formally shifted our strategy to include philanthropy and grant making and, um, and a social agenda. And, uh, and, and, and the DNA of our company is, um, is, is a project management approach. Okay. So we, we use that in this process. I mean, even if we don't call it a project management, we have the same kind of mindset. So, um, we, um, we hired a consultant, to uh, to do a study of our reputation in the community, um, I would talk with my peers to get their advice, and um, and then with my board members that had experience in this area, and then from all of those sources, we put together a uh, 
a, a development strategy we called, and then we just marched down that path. Nice. The first couple of tasks actually related to the board, believe it or not, it taught, you know, we had to, um, change our bylaws, you know, add some members, um, our board commitment expectations, all of those things had to change. And then we started with a, um, um, hiring um, a staff person to do the work. So when you commit to philanthropy, you just can't say, I want to raise money. Um, you have to have a, a, a structured step-by-step thematic approach. That's yeah, well put. I wonder, like advocacy, have you found, you know, a lot of the money's in the metro areas throughout the state? Or have you found, though, there's also kind of the grassroots fundraising that folks that appreciate what you're doing, even in the smaller communities? Ultimately, a healthy organization is going to have a lot of what you call the grassroots yeah, right. um, um, fundraising because that that's like the, the base of your triangle. We've been a little bit inverted be, because we're still new. Okay. So, um, and also our experience. So we already, because we were in the, we're a part of what we do is government contracting on our services and our, um, our mental health, behavioral health services. We were already pretty good at, at um, writing grants. So we expanded that. So right now the bulk of our money probably comes through grants. We're just really effective at writing for grants. Sure. And um, you have the and, outcomes and the measures, right? That those yeah. kind of funders, I'm sure love. Yes. And, and, you know, and we're measurement oriented. So that's yeah. very popular with, with those. And then we're working to develop our, um, our, our donor base to, to grow that part of it. So that's been the last part to come along. Uh, impressive. Um, well, let me circle back to your board. You talked about a third of them roughly kind of focus on mm-hmm. advocacy or certainly embrace that. How have you approached your board on the philanthropy fundraising side? Well, we asked them all to contribute, you know, to our cause according yep. to what they're able to do. And, um, and they've shown a willingness to do that. We also ask them to, you know, introduce us to people that would care about this mission. And, um, and they've, you know, been more than willing to do that, particularly back in the days when we used to have face-to-face in-person events. <laughs> yeah, our, back our in board, the day, right. I know. Uh, they they really stepped up and they wouldn't, you know, fill their tables. So we asked them to do that type of, I would call traditional um, fundraising support. And then if we are, resp- you know, if we are responding to a grant from a foundation, we'll ask them, do you know anyone that works there? Nice. And if they do, then we'll say, can you put in a good word for us? <laughs> Connect um, the dots. Yes. Yeah. And, and they've been very helpful on, on that end as well. Hey, so. Karen- Oh, thank you. And thank you for bouncing around with me because you have so much. I want to make sure I get to all these good topics. You have a board of directors and a board of governors. Talk about mm-hmm. what each um, it do- is or does uh, mm-hmm. for our listeners that may not understand that. The board of governors are our former board members that okay. um, we want to keep them attached and engaged with the organization. And, um, and we invite them to our events they're ambassadors for us, and um, and we find that it's it's a it's a good source of support. And then that way, you know, your board members can roll off the board, but they don't have to just you don't have to not hear from them again, right? It's just 
a way to stay close. I love that. And so if I'm on the board of governors, I'm still invited to some meetings. I guess I'm, still I'm not, a, not a voting member mm-hmm. anymore. Right. But mm-hmm. it's still You're invited to our events. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But if they wanted, they could be on the development committee. For <laughs> yeah. You, you would accept yeah. that volunteer. Assignment I sure anytime. would. I sure would. <laughs> or we may say, can you advocate for us? You know, um, I mean, obviously uh, we don't want to overwhelm them with work. Right. But, um, you know, it's like, what are they willing to do? And, and some of our board of governors, um, um, you know, they'll volunteer. One dresses up as Santa and he comes to our housing nice. um, right. um, properties every Christmas with toys for the kids. Uh, another one, um, he sponsored, uh, he sponsors some students for us. So they give back in their own ways. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh- well, Karen, my last kind of set or questions or topic is looking ahead. You know, what what are the biggest challenges you see going forward, you know, as a CEO? I guess this might get into your strategic planning process. Just curious, how are you looking forward and approaching that? Our biggest challenge is the one we're in right now, which is um, the coronavirus and how it's impacted um, our ability to deliver services. Uh, And so the sooner that um, we can all get vaccinated and um, keep our clients and our employees safe, the better off Pioneer will be. And then as soon as the public starts flying again, Uh, the business public, right? Um, Then, you know, our, you know, folks that, you know, fly 737s, They'll, they'll start, you know, picking up their orders and, um, you. and our customer um, will start to demand um, the parts that we make. We make the escape hatch assemblies in all 737 aircraft. So if you've sat in an exit row um, in a 737, um, then, um, then that thing that looks like a door. Pioneer that did that. Yeah. We made that here yeah. at Pioneer. And, um, and so, um, right now there's not a lot of demand for that. We would like to change it. We, we need to change that quickly. Did did you change your, I mean, did you have like a five-year plan before this pandemic hit and now you've reduced it to a one year? Tell me about how the kind of the timelines that you're looking Mm -hmm. at, or did you change as a result? We, we like a three-year strategic plan just because it's harder to see. Right. Further. Beyond that beyond that um beyond that time frame uh the 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 books on strategic planning say that if you're in the middle of a crisis crisis it's a terrible time to plan strategically because all of your energy is on the current year that you're in right um and and i would say that that's true although um difficult times often hide great opportunity. Good so point. we are are embarking on our next three-year plan. I would call that gingerly okay. right now because we're in this year of we have to execute um, the way we need to for the organization. And um, But keep an eye out for the future. So we're going to try to update our strategic plan this year, even though we're, 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 we're still in the middle of COVID. As I was going to ask, I've heard, I've heard some executive directors tell me that I don't think it's going to go back the way it was for a long time. So mm-hmm. I, you know, if we're just kind of waiting to get back to normal, but 
you need it to get back to normal to some extent, certainly from the aerospace side. But what do you think about that kind of reaction that, yes, we, we may have to change in a longer term sense? Well, our clients have not changed. Yeah. So our clients still need our services. And in fact, they need them even more. So what we have to do at Pioneer is, um, is continue to deliver services and as many as we can safely. And the once, and so that's why the vaccination is so important gotcha. uh, because gotcha. um, it allows us to, um, to start to deliver services the way that makes them most effective um, for folks that are just coming out of incarceration that have not um, ever um, been comfortable with technology. It's very difficult to give them high quality services virtually because they're not comfortable Understandable. with a laptop like you and I are talking today. So, right. and that's part of their education. And, um, and then to deliver that in a cohort system in a classroom setting, we're not able to do. So um, that's why, yeah, you yeah. need to get back. So we absolutely do. Totally understand. Um, Karen, you've offered a gold mine of advice. So on behalf of our listeners, um, excited to share this episode. Let me ask you this again, someone who's listening say, gosh, you know, I, I want to be like Karen someday. Is there mm -hmm. any final advice you might offer someone that, you know, is on the path to nonprofit leadership? Uh, you want to be like Karen someday. My first thought is get a lobotomy. No, um, I, I think that when, when I'm interviewed from a business magazine, I'm going to start my comment from, I would say sure. this perception that I think is unfair. The perception is that nonprofits are not businessy and they're easy. I submit that it's harder to lead a nonprofit than it is to lead a for-profit. And, and your, your margins are razor thin and you have less, the tools that you have are fewer to keep your organization viable and sustainable economically, which is why you have to fundraise. Right. And, um, you know, because if there was a profit in, in the service you're delivering, then, then you would sell it. Yes, indeed. So I have found it incredibly challenging. And as I've seen people nibble with running a nonprofit, they're retired and then they say, I yes. want to run a nonprofit. I find that they'll do that for one or two years and say it was harder than I thought because it's, it's hard. So we, so I would, I would say acknowledge that it's going to be difficult and you want to make it your life's work if you can. Um, because the longer, the more longevity and tenure you have in your position, the more your community will rally to your cause. So my advice is, is when you're early in your career and you're younger, learn your business, learn the dynamics of, of the service you're delivering in your business, and then learn the financial aspects of your business. So you want to learn how 
the, and then learn the business model. How, yeah. how does, how, how does your endeavor make money and how, how is it financially stable? Learn and then learn how to lead people yes. in your nonprofit, whether it's in the arts or whether it's, um, you know, or whether it's even, you know, a soccer club or something. I mean, yeah. you know, nonprofits, any you know, sector, what, right? Any mm-hmm. sector, you really need to understand the business model um, and, and, and how to, you know, and whether the cash flow is a key for you or, you know, whether it's a balance sheet indicator, you want to understand all of that and how it works. And, um, and then you want to learn how to listen to the community because the community is your customer. Well put. Um, and, um, and just enjoy the heck out of that career. <laughs> I, I mean, you're, you're it will be hard, but enjoy question. it as well. Right. And, um, and then once you do that, um, you'll progress to ho- however you want to do. And then when you, when you're in an ED position, um, you'll be able to, um, remain in that position for a long time. And then you'll learn the lessons and then you will, you will learn along the way. Um, you know, when you get, when you, when you do get to an ED position, the management part, you, you would have already done so that you'd be able to see, you know, how the operations are going. You won't have to do them necessarily, unless it's a very tiny organization. So then you're just learning how to deal with the board and and there's no shortcut to that. You just got to get in the chair. And, um, and the same thing goes with fundraising, you know, but it's, but fundraising is, um, it's, it's fun. And I say, and and I used to be quite, you know, fearful, but it is fun, and it's an opportunity to meet people that you could turn on to your cause, and what a joyous relationship! So you have to look at it as an opportunity to be in relationship with someone else, and get to know them, and then have them get to know you and your cause. And well, I but- think that that's a privilege to be able to, to do it. So it's actually something, you know, that I look forward to. Well, clearly you do it well. And your advice across multiple topics there uh, was um, well, well put. And I'm glad in particular, you raised Karen, the point of, because you and I both have run into people well-intentioned who think, you know, working in nonprofit would be fun and easier than perhaps some other kind of job they begin to <laughs> despise. But I'm glad you underlined it. This is hard work, but it's, it's important hard. work and and one that you have clearly kind of embraced and put it mm-hmm. into your life's work. Yes. Um, thank you again. One parting gift, if I can ask on behalf of myself and our listeners, how about a book that has been meaningful to you along your journey that you might recommend to our listeners? How to Talk About Race. Good. And, um, I, I, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I, I saw some of the books that a lot of your, uh, your, uh, your podcast guests and, and I would say that they were traditional management books, things that, um, that, that anyone who's into improving themselves in their career, I think that they, you, you know, read, I mean, from, you know, um, Drucker to, uh, all you the know, standards. the one yep. thing, yep. but um, I noticed that there weren't books that talked about um, race and race relations. And um, what I've really tried to do in the last year or two is, is to 
um, is to make that a part of mandatory management reading. And I think everyone should. Good. Um, and go back in history, you know, maybe start with a book like Why We Can't Wait by Martin Luther King or The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Um, but um, anyway, my favorite right now is How to Talk About Race because that gets you into the mind of um, a person of color that might work for you. Right. And, um, but there's lots, there's white fragility. I have not read, but that's the next one on my reading list. Yeah, I finished that one. That's a great one. But Ibram Kendi's, um, the the anti-racist. How to be an uh, anti-racist is another. Mm -hmm. So just mercy. Exactly. Right. Well, Karen, like the entire interview, you had more than just one good answer to my answer of a book. So thank you for giving us uh, a start, frankly, to a bookshelf that we all need to populate, which is issues of race. It's not just management and productivity, Mm -hmm. uh, even though I know I'm a fan of some of those books, but I'm grateful you raised an important part of this. Um, Where can people find out more about the great work you're doing and the work at Pioneer? Come to our website, please. <laughs> Pioneer Human Services forward slash quiz is a place I would love for people to go to learn a little bit about mass incarceration and see what you know. Um, you know, maybe it will open your eyes and uh, and then you can be you, you can become a part of the Pioneer family um, so that we can you know, together get our arms around this monster that we've created and see what we can do to, to, you know, to change society, change the world. Wonderful. Karen, thank you again for joining me on the path. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Karen as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and frankly help your nonprofit's organizational strategy. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, and you can find out more about Karen, her work at Pioneer, and how you can even take the Pioneer quiz. Check out their website, and Karen will lead you there from our conversation. Uh, That is also in the show notes. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at pattonmcdowell.com and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus episodes we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. And I'll see you next time on The Path.